Luke chapter 13 is where we're going to be, but before you, before we jump into the text, let me read a couple of other passages for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, He chose us in Him, that's God chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. And in Matthew twenty-five thirty-four, Jesus, speaking of the sheep and goat judgments, says, Then the King will say to those on His right, that's the sheep, the believers, Come, you who are blessed of My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So before God spoke anything into existence, before He spoke this world into existence, before He created the sun, the moon, and the stars, before He scooped up a handful of dust from the earth and formed Adam, before He filled Adam's lungs with the breath of life, before he took the rib from Adam and created Eve, before he walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day, before Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, before there was sin in this world, before God pronounced any of the judgments and the curses, before the first death ever occurred, God already had a plan of redemption. Before He ever created anything, He already planned for the redemption of mankind. The plan of God was man's only hope. Since sin entered the human race, man is incapable of living a life that is holy and righteous enough to appease a holy and righteous God. Man's very best can never be enough to earn Him a place in heaven. But, God loved man so much that He made a way for man to be forgiven for his sin and and redeemed and have a home in heaven. God made a way for that man to be holy and righteous, that person to be holy and righteous. Before He created anything, before sin was part of the human condition, God already had chosen the means, the acceptable sacrifice, the exact day and time and place where the sacrifice would take place. God had already determined to give His only begotten Son as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin for all who would call upon Him by faith. The plan was so certain that God could give specific details about that plan 700 years before they even took place. He could give details such as the Savior's family line, the miraculous nature of His birth, the location of His birth, the rejection He would experience in this world and the way He would die. God had determined every detail of the plan of forgiveness and salvation for those whom He loved. And nothing will change God's plan. Nothing could stop the plan from taking place. 
No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever change the plan of God for redemption. God's plan is unalterable. To try to alter God's plan for the redemption of mankind is like trying to alter yesterday's weather. It's too late. It's already in the record books. You can't go back and change it now. The plan of God is actually more certain than that. And Jesus alludes to the impossibility of changing God's plan when he's confronted by a group of Pharisees and try to, who try to drive him out of town. During the brief confrontation that takes place at the end of Luke chapter 13, reveals Jesus' commitment to the plan of God and Jerusalem's role in the plan of God. So we start with Jesus' commitment to the plan of God. You follow along as I read Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. We'll just read to the end of the chapter and then go back and unpack it. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Behold, your house has left you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 31 Jesus is in this town somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus had set his mind to go to Jerusalem. He's going to take his time on the journey. He's going to stop in many towns and villages. He's going to give the gospel again, give these people another chance, one final opportunity for them to repent before he goes to the cross. He's going to heal people. He's going to perform miracles along the way. But he's heading from Galilee to Jerusalem for the last time. He's never going to be back up in Galilee before the cross. So this is the last opportunity for these villages to see and hear from him before he dies. Along the way, Luke reveals the widespread rejection of Jesus. Happened in a Samaritan village when they refused to allow them to stay there. And you might remember Peter and or James and John saying, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and consume this village? We see the rejection of him by those who made excuses why they couldn't follow him. Jesus calls men to follow and they said, you know, I'd love to, but I, I just bought a piece of property. I got to go check it out and make sure the blackberries don't roll over the place. And, uh, or I just, uh, I just got married and, or I'm engaged and, uh, you know, eventually I'll get married and, or my father is, uh, you know, I, I think he's going to die soon. You know, he's he's 58, but he's probably going to die soon. Uh, so I'll, I should stick around until he's dead, and then I'll come follow you. Then there was the lawyers who tried to trip him up in the law, and Jesus made them look foolish because they didn't even know what they were talking about. Then there were the religious and societal leaders of Israel that rejected him, and the Pharisees as well. But despite all the rejections, 
Jesus will accomplish His plan. And our text reveals not even Herod could stop Him. The Pharisees approach Him and in this unknown, unnamed town and say, you need to leave here, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Apparently, Jesus had stayed there for at least a few days, a day or two, and He was performing miracles, healing people. And He just answered the question. Somebody asked Him, are many people going to be saved or a few people going to be saved? And and Jesus said to, you, to those who are listening, you need to enter, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door. With that, at that moment, some Pharisees approached him and said, you need to leave. Go away. Herod wants to kill you. And it's unlikely that the Pharisees were actually concerned for Jesus' safety. It's unlikely that they were coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you should, you should leave. Herod wants to kill you. Pharisees are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke 26 times, and every time they're used in a negative way. So it's unlikely at this point that this is a nice thing that they're trying to do for him. And Jesus' response bears that out as well. The Herod that the Pharisees are referring to is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler of Israel when Jesus was born. When he died, he divided his reign, according to his will, amongst his three sons. One of his sons, Herod Archelaus, became Herod Archelaus, was named an ethnarch, which is governor of the ethnic people, and he ruled Samaria and Judea and Idumea. It only lasted for ten years, and then he was deposed. Another son, Philip, was named a tetrarch, and tetrarch is, means the ruler of a fourth. Where Archelaus ruled half of the land, Philip ruled a quarter of it. His area was northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And then Herod Antipas was also a tetrarch, a ruler of the fourth. And he ruled Galilee and Perea, which are the two areas that were dominated by the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. In the Bible, Herod Antipas is best known for the arrest and ultimate execution of John the Baptist. Herod had been traveling and he had passed through his brother Philip's area and he, his eyes fell on Philip's wife Herodias and Antipas had a, had a better gig than Philip did and a better title than Philip did and Herod Antipas was, uh, had an opportunity to rise in the Roman ranks so Herodias left Philip to marry Antipas. But when that happened, John the Baptist boldly spoke out against the illegality of that, and that was wrong for that to happen. And as a result, Antipas had John the Baptist put in a dungeon and kept him there for a long time. You might remember the story. Antipas's niece then danced in front of him in such a way that he got all excited and said, I'll give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. And she went to mom and said, what do I ask for? And mom was very generous and said, just ask for the head of John the Baptist. So that's what she asked for. And because Antipas had made that vow in front of everybody, he was bound to fulfill it and had John executed. After hearing about the teachings and the miracle-working ministry of Jesus, Herod Antipas was terrified, believing that it was John the Baptist who had been risen from the dead, and he might just be upset with Herod. So he was afraid that 
John is risen from the dead, he's going to come back and seek revenge. In Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, it said, And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. This is speaking of Jesus. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others were saying, he's Elijah. Others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But Herod heard of it. He kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. As far as a Roman official is concerned, Antipas was best known for building major cities. He built the largest city in Galilee, Sepphoris, and then Tiberias, another large city named for Tiberius Caesar, and it become, would become the capital of the area. He was a powerful ruler. He had been appointed by Caesar Augustus, and he had the backing of Tiberius Caesar. And he was the ruler or the, the commander of thousands of Roman soldiers. So at any given time, Antipas could bring in soldiers and squash any kind of rebellion that would take place. In fact, he had done that before. And when Jesus would go to, to Jerusalem for his last Passover on earth, Herod Antipas would go down there too, and his whole sole reason for being there was to keep the Jews from Galilee from causing any trouble. Despite his political power and authority, Herod Antipas is completely and utterly powerless to stop God's plan from being fulfilled. And that's something that you and I need to remember. It really does not matter what human authority of our earth has power and can usurp their power and and pass laws or put people in prison or anything like that. They cannot stop God's plan from taking place. Nothing that our government or any other government on this earth can do will ever stop God's plan. It won't even alter God's plan. God's plan will happen exactly as He intended from before the foundation of the world. And we don't ever have to worry. We can do our part and we can vote and we can peacefully protest and we can do all the other things that we get to do within our rights as Americans, but what we don't need to do as Christians is worry. God's plan is going to be fulfilled. Jesus will continue to fulfill the Father's plan and He'll continue with the ministry of compassion and seeking to save the lost. In verse 32, He talks about compassion. But He first starts off with, said, Go tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Go tell that fox. Well, Jesus doesn't believe the Pharisees are looking out for his best interest. So he tells them to bring a message to Herod Antipas. Now, he's not saying that Herod is a good-looking man for the 70s. The message that Jesus gives is actually kind of shocking. Because we see Jesus most of the time on His first coming as being meek and mild. He was straightforward when He was before Pontius Pilate with His trial. He answered some questions and He told Pilate straight out, you wouldn't have any authority unless my Father gave it to you. 
But when Pilate had heard that Herod was in town, and since Herod ruled Galilee and Jesus was from Galilee, it made sense for Pilate to send Jesus to Herod. And when Herod questioned Jesus, Jesus didn't say a word. He just, by not saying anything, was treating Herod with disdain. There was something about Herod Antipas that that caused Jesus to think of him in terms of disdain. That old fox, today we, if you use that term, it would probably mean somebody that was sneaky or sly or cunning in what they would get. And and there's room for that in the in the meaning that in the time that Jesus uses it. But at that moment in time, foxes were pests. They they weren't protected animals. They weren't kept in zoos. They were varmints. They were annoyances. So more fitting, it's the the way it was used in the time was to mean that somebody who thought they were something was really nothing. So Herod thought himself to be a lion. Jesus refers to him as a fox, as an annoyance, as a pest, as a varmint. Herod thinks he's great, wonderful, powerful. He's got a title. He's empowered by Rome. Jesus is saying, you're not, you're, you're really nothing. Herod is kind of like the guy who tells you that he's part owner in a very successful online company. And as you continue to question, you find out that what that means is, once upon a time, he invested $100 in a mutual fund, and now he is owns one-tenth of one percent of one of the over five million shares of Amazon. He's nothing. Herod thought he was something. Jesus says, nah, he's nothing. It's a way of Jesus saying what Herod wants to do or thinks is irrelevant because Herod is irrelevant. It really doesn't matter what Herod wants. The plan of God would not be hindered by someone so insignificant as Herod Antipas. So Jesus tells the Pharisees to inform Herod that he's going to continue to do the work that he's been doing. He had no intention of changing his plan. He had no intention of going into hiding. He will do the work that the Father has given him to do. He'll keep showing compassion to the people. He'll still perform healings. He'll still cast out demons. He'll perform other miracles. He'll still keep preaching and teaching. When Jesus said, today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal, he's not trying to give his ministry a timeline here. In other words, he's not saying, well, today's Friday and by Sunday I'll be in Jerusalem. It was a idiomatic statement, a very common saying for the time, and it referred to completing a task. Completing something that is your plan to complete your scheduled task. It's like saying, I'll leave when the job's done. Or more to the point, you can tell Herod, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I'm finished. Or you could put it another way, go tell Herod I'll be here all week. No one or nothing will change God's plan. He's going to reach his goal. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Well, the goal of Jesus Christ was to do the will of the Father. 
In John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He said, I'm going to do what God has sent me to do, what the Father sent me to do. In John 50, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And in John 6, 38, He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So throughout His ministry, Jesus has said, Jesus has said I am here to do the will of my Father. What my Father wants me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to alter that plan. You can't distract me with other things. I'm singular in my focus, and that's to do the will of my Father. Specifically, the will of the Father was for Jesus to complete the work of redemption. That was the plan from before the foundation of the world. That is the plan when Jesus is on earth to fulfill that plan of redemption. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave us, or who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. If Jesus had come to do his own will when he was told the Pharisees are looking for you or the Herod is looking for you and wants to kill you, then he would have retreated. He would have gone into hiding. He would have tried to protect himself. But he, it wasn't his plan. His plan was to do the will of the Father. And he knew the will of the Father could never be thwarted. And he knew the will of the Father was to complete the plan of redemption, which means to sacrifice himself. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The great news for you and me is that God's plan of redemption cannot be hindered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It does not matter what anybody does. It doesn't matter what any government does or says. It doesn't matter what any individual does or says. It doesn't matter what your parents do or say. It doesn't matter what your employer does or say. It doesn't matter what a teacher says to you. God's plan of redemption cannot be changed. It is what it is. It is exactly as He intended it to be. Which means that the plan of salvation always stays the same. It doesn't change from era to era. It doesn't change from culture to culture. It doesn't change from desire to desire. It's always the same. Jesus will reach His goal. He will make it to Jerusalem at the appointed time. He'll die on the cross at the appointed time in the appointed way. But Jerusalem has a role to play in this plan. In verse 33, Nevertheless, I journey on today and tomorrow and the next day 
It's the same idiomatic statement from verse 32. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. The plan that God has for Jerusalem is for the crucifixion to take place there because that's what Jerusalem would be known for. Jerusalem kills the prophets. Now when Jesus says that it it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem, he's not saying that every prophet that's ever been killed was killed in Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem is the chief city, because it's the religious headquarters of the nation of Israel, they were ultimately responsible for the death of the prophets. Jesus could have said it this way of Jerusalem, you kill your own prophets. The prophets that are sent to you, you kill, you murder them. Jesus made that point clear in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35. He said, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Apparently there was a prophet during the New Testament times that they murdered there in the temple compound. The Old Testament bears out this truth. Speaking of Manasseh, not the leader of the tribe of Manasseh, but a king of Judah named Manasseh an evil king. In 2 Kings 21, verses 16, said, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. One of the wicked things Manasseh did was encourage the worship of Molech, an Ammonite god, where they would sacrifice their children into the fire. And then... To continue to ratchet that up, he would kill the prophets of God. In 2 Kings 24, verses 3 and 4, continue and say, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from the sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. We move on just a few kings later to Jehoiakim, another wicked king of Judah. And Jeremiah 26, verses 20 through 23 said, Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kirath-Jerim. And he prophesied against the city and against this land, words similar to those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it, and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Elnathan, the son of Akbar, and certain men with him went into Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Jehoiakim was so upset at the prophecies of Uriah that he pursued him all the way to Egypt until he found him and drug him back. And killed him. Second Chronicles 24 verses 20 to 21. It says, Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, the priest, 
And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord and He has forsaken you. So they conspired against Him and at the command of the king they stoned Him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. They stoned Him to death right there in the temple. And that's what Jerusalem had a habit of doing when there was a wicked king and they were doing wicked things and God would send a prophet. They said, we don't want to hear the good news. So we're just going to kill the prophet. We're going to kill the spokesman for God because we don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want to hear about our sin. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? We don't want to hear about our sin. We don't want to hear the wickedness that we're doing. We don't want anybody to point it out and we'll just kill anybody that does. Tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was forced into a hollow log and then they sawed him in half. In Luke chapter 20, verses 13 through 18, Jesus gives this parable of the wicked tenants to illustrate the wicked response of Jerusalem to those whom God has sent. And the parable is there was a a vineyard owner and he leased out his vineyard to a group of people. And when time... To collect the rent came, he sent one of his servants to go collect the rent. When the servant came in to collect the rent, the the people who were leasing the land beat up the the servant and sent him on his way empty-handed. So the landowner sent another servant, a second one, and they did the same thing. They beat him up and sent him home with no rent. So he sent a third servant and they did the same thing to the third servant. And then the landowner said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. And they sent the son. And as the the tenants of the vineyard saw the son coming, they said, listen, let's kill the son because he's the heir. He's going to inherit this one day. And if we kill him, it'll be all ours. So they killed the son. Obviously, we understand what Jesus is saying to the people of Israel. God has sent you warning after warning after warning. And all you have done is beat those prophets or stone them. And then God sent his son and you're going to kill him. Because the temple was in Jerusalem. And and the temple is the place where sacrifices took place. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is our Passover Lamb. It's also fitting for Him to die in Jerusalem. It's really not fitting for Him to die anywhere else. It makes total sense. Not only did they kill the prophets, they squandered their opportunity. Look at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. There had been so much light given to Jerusalem. Through the prophets of the Old Testament, through the preaching of John the Baptist, through the preaching of Jesus. But they hated it. And John 3 reveals that. Well, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and wanted to ask about salvation. Jesus would say that you need to come to the light of the truth of the gospel, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They hate the light. And that was certainly true of Jesus. They hated Him. Not because He would wag His finger at Jerusalem. Not because He would criticize everybody every chance He got. It's because He would teach them truth. 
And the need to repent and the need to honor God with their life. The need of sacrifice and humility. And they hated it. Maybe you've had family or friends like that when you got serious about serving the Lord. And as you tried to serve the Lord, those friends or that fam- those family members didn't want to hang out with you anymore because it was you were no fun. You just weren't any fun for them anymore. In fact, it was worse than you weren't more any fun anymore. It's that just your presence was condemnation in their life. You didn't have to wag your finger at their behavior. You didn't have to look down your nose and scoff at the things that they were doing. They knew what you believed and they just didn't want you around because they felt guilty. That's what it was like for the nation of Israel. When Jesus would send the prophets or He Himself would come in and speak to them. It was convicting and they didn't like it. But Jesus had compassion on them and He loved them and He saw them as sheep without a shepherd and He wanted to draw them to Himself and show them compassion. That's why He healed. One of the reasons He healed. Everybody that was sick, anybody that had a demon, He cast them out. He loved them. He wanted to make their life better than it was. Even those that would reject Him. Jesus wanted to protect and care for the people of Israel The tender way a mother hen cares for her baby chicks. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. For me, chicken comes under cellophane. Or in a bucket. But I watched a couple of different YouTube videos that illustrate the point. In one of them, there's a mama hen with her six chicks. And they're in a field and... A hawk comes in to take her chicks and the mother hen defends her chicks vigorously until the hawk finally gives up and leaves. And then the second was more to the point. It was a a video of a a chicken pouring rain and she's got her wings spread. You see her little little, uh, chicks uh, under her wings there. She's getting pelted by the rain. They're nice and dry. That's the picture that Jesus is giving here. I wanted to gather, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you to me the way a hen gathers her chicks, protects them under her wings. But you wouldn't have any of it. The metaphor of God covering His people like a hen covers her chicks is used several times. Here's just a few examples from the book of Psalms. It's used as a plea in Psalm 17.8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Most often it's used of God's protection in Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I take refuge until destruction passes by. And Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge and faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Repeatedly we have this imagery of coming to God when we're afraid, coming to God when we need protection and God covering us up and protecting us from all the nonsense in this world. Protecting us from those who want to destroy. Jesus wanted to protect Jerusalem from the divine judgment 
that comes when one rejects Christ. He wanted to spare them the eternal damnation, but they wouldn't have any of it. And we can look on this side of it and say, how sad for them. How sad that they would reject this offer of God's protection, this offer of forgiveness and redemption. It's just as sad today when people reject the offer of grace and mercy. The problem today is we, if we're not careful, we often think, well, too bad for them. They'll figure it out one day. And we don't understand necessarily the damnation that awaits all who reject Christ. It's not that they just don't get to go to heaven. It's that they go to hell. They squandered their opportunity to have their sins forgiven and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. They chose to reject the protection of the loving hand of God and to live a life outside of His protection. Because of that, they'll be judged. Verse 35. Behold, your house is left left to you desolate. And I say to you that you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The city of Jerusalem and its people would be left desolate. There's no doubt that Jesus was referring to a time just about uh, 35 years future of his day, 70 A.D. The Jewish people had revolted against Rome. For about four years, they had been fighting back and forth. The Jews had tried to fight and killed. They'd killed many Roman soldiers. And finally, the Romans sent in General Titus and a massive army. They went in with 23,000 troops. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They killed hundreds of thousands of Jews. They went door to door killing Jews. According to Josephus, a historian near the time, they estimate that one million Jews were killed and a hundred thousand were taken captive. Forty-five years later, the Jews rebelled again. It's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Roman soldiers went in, killed another half million Jews, and totally destroyed, leaving no trace of a thousand towns and villages in Jerusalem or in the surrounding areas. The people of Israel and Jerusalem forfeited their opportunity to be forgiven, forfeited redemption, and they paid the ultimate price. The next time Israel sees Jesus, it'll be at the second coming. And Jesus here quotes from Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next time that Jesus comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but for most of them it'll already be too late. For those who lived in Jerusalem at the time, it was too late. When Jesus comes as the warrior king to conquer People's fate will have already been decided. They'll have already chosen to follow Christ or reject Him for eternity. 
God's plan for the redemption of man can't be changed. It was his plan before the creation of the world. No power on earth can change it. Can't be changed by the will of man. No amount of rebellion will ever alter God's plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption is not like U.S. laws, where if you just get a group of people who complain enough in front of a TV camera, it will change. You can get all the people you want, get them all on CNN. You can pass out a petition around the whole United States and get the majority of people to sign it that you want redemption on your terms, and it won't make a bit of difference. Redemption has always been on God's terms. And nothing will change that. That means if you rebel against God's plan, the only thing you succeed in doing is squandering your opportunity to be forgiven. You will not succeed in anything beyond that. You'll put yourself in opposition to God and one day you will incur His wrath. The only other opportunity, the only other choice is to Submit to the plan of God for redemption. The plan that he had in place before he ever even created the world. Knowing what would happen. Knowing that man would rebel and sin would enter the world. And knowing that you would be born and you would be a sinner. God planned for your redemption if you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. There's no plan B. There's no other opportunity. It is what the Bible says, and that's it. So when Herod wanted to kill Jesus, Jesus wasn't worried. There was never a moment when Jesus thought, gee, I wonder wonder if he could really do that. It was never a thought. Jesus was going to fulfill the plan. And those of us who have received Jesus Christ are eternally grateful that he did. That he didn't run and hide. That he knew that the Father's will would be accomplished. Let's give God praise, if you know him, for his plan of redemption. And if you don't know him, please call out to him today. Because it's the only plan there is. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you. For the privilege of being in your house today, Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to know you, Father, the privilege of redemption, the blessing that it is to be called children of God. Father, it's not always an easy road. There's challenges, there's conflict, but Father, we are so grateful that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die in our place so we might know the forgiveness of sin and might know His righteousness. And Father, be a redeemed people for your glory. Lord, because you know every heart in this room, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would bring them to saving faith today. That Father, they would not squander their opportunity to be saved, but they would take you up on your gift of salvation. Father, thank you. Thank you that your plan to redeem people would include sinners like us, those who had no redeeming qualities, 
It wasn't because of any merit on our own, but Father, because of Your grace and Your great love that You chose to save us. Thank You, Father. We give You praise and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.